Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Tuesday on the Three Martini Lunch. We're so glad you are here. It's all crazies today, from the congressional impasse to uh, the media going crazy and uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. is involved too. So it's a full crazy day here on the Three Martini Lunch. Let's start with the first one and probably the biggest one, Jim. And that's what we talked about yesterday. Uh, Nancy Pelosi essentially derailing what appeared to be a bipartisan consensus, if not uh, agreement across the board on a coronavirus relief package, uh, cutting checks to the American people, support for businesses, uh, expanded unemployment insurance, uh, a lot of help for the healthcare industry, on and on and on. The Democrats didn't like what they saw as a half trillion dollar slush fund. Others would call it flexibility to help various businesses. But uh, instead of just not liking the Senate bill, Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats rolled out what you called a Christmas tree of giveaways for special interest, Jim. This is, I'm sure, not exhaustive. Uh, they wanted to publish all corporate pay statistics by race and publish race statistics for all corporate boards. They wanted to bail out the Postal Service, require early voting, require same-day registration, and not uh, have any verification other than to just take the voters' word for who they are. Provisions on official time for collective bargaining, full offsets of airline emissions by 2025, because that's what they need right now, release uh, greenhouse gas statistics for individual flights, $15 minimum wage across the board, permanent paid leave, and then we get into the real money, $33 million for NOAA, because obviously coronavirus is going to make landfall somewhere, uh, $100 million for NASA, almost $300 million for the IRS, $35 million for the Kennedy Center, $300 million for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, $500 million for the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Needless to say, Republicans not pleased. Here's Mitch McConnell Monday on the Senate floor. Even with the Federal Reserve announcing even further extraordinary steps today, the markets are tanking once again, as I said, because this body can't get its act together. And the only reason it can't get its act together is right over here on the other side of the aisle. So these are just a few of the completely non-germane wish list items that they're rallying behind, preventing us from getting this emergency relief to the American people right now. 11th hour demands the Democrats have decided are more important than Americans' paychecks and the personal safety of doctors and nurses. Every day, more Americans wake up to the news that their jobs are gone. Their jobs are gone. Democrats are filibustering programs to keep people on the payroll, and they're filibustering a huge expansion of unemployment insurance, which they themselves negotiated and put into the bill. And if that weren't enough, Jim, here's Nancy Pelosi on CNBC actually complaining about what she calls poison pills in the Senate legislation. You can support a bill because if it doesn't do enough that you want to do, but that's what you can get. But if it has poison pills in it, then and, and they know certain things are poison pills, mm-hmm. and then they don't want unanimous consent. They just want an ideological statement. So, Jim, uh, as we convene here late Tuesday morning, it appears Nancy Pelosi is giving up the ghost on a lot of this stuff. I think she's gotten the backlash that we were hoping that she would get. There might be some additional compromises here. But uh, the fact that the Democrats tried to pull the Rahm Emanuel here uh, is disgusting. And it's just amazing that they actually got called out on it. Yeah, there were three things that are jumping out at me that I think aren't getting the attention they deserve. 
Um, issue one is the rec apparently, um, you know, because of the spread of the coronavirus and because there are several members who've either been at risk or self-quarantined or things like this, you know, people started asking about the continuance of government thing. And so Pelosi asked House Rules Chairman Jim McGovern, a Democrat from Massachusetts, uh, study options for remote voting. And he came to the conclusion, uh, you know, yesterday that it would be too complicated to enact a new kind of sweeping rules change for the stimulus bill. So as far as they're concerned, as far as he's concerned, the best way to, you know, uh, to pass the bill was by voice vote or unanimous consent. In other words, not having people to go and press the buttons that they have to press in order to vote yes or to vote no in the House of Representatives. Well, they haven't even resolved that. So first of all, that's, that puts them at risk for coronavirus. But the fact that they haven't really uh, put away of how they're going to vote for something and they want to pass something as big and complicated as their bill with as many controversial provisions as you, as you just listed there, Greg, without any plan for a rule to pass it indicates that it's not a, you know, quote unquote, real bill that they never really expected to get it passed, that they don't really, that this was pretty much a negotiating ploy. This was a counter offer or a card they never really expected to play. The problem is, of course, is that she, you know, stuck to her guns and, and managed to gum this up for several days at a time when speed is of the essence. The second thing is kind of jumping out at me. I think this indicates how much Democrats are used to having the media cover things the way they want. And periodically you'll hear, you'll hear Republican congressional press secretaries say, what do Democratic congressional press secretaries do all day? Other than maybe distribute the talking points, because they certainly don't have to do damage control. They certainly don't have to swat away nearly as many negative stories. They never, you know, very rarely have to spend much time correcting um, inaccurate reporting or, or things like that, uh, you know, against their members. In this case, Pelosi was convinced she could do this and pay minimal cost because the coverage would be very much like we saw in those evolving headlines in the Washington Post and New York Times and other places where Democrats block stimulus bill gradually turned into partisan wrangling, you know, derails stimulus bill and, and things like that. And the third thing that kind of gets to me about this, do the Democrats in the House think, or the Senate for that matter too, do they really think this is the last chance they're going to get to stick in every little uh, spending priority they have? Do they think that there's not going to be another <laughs> big spending bill through the normal appropriations process coming down the pike in a couple of months? There are a lot of times, like I understand, you know, po politicians exist to spend money. I realize they have all kinds of special causes they want to help out. I realize, you know, the Kennedy Center really needs to get help at a time like this. But I, you know, the idea this is not the time and the place, even for the usual political stuff. And everybody else on the Republican side seems to get this. They seem to understand that if we don't, you know, each day you, de you delay this, as we've been discussing this week, more businesses go under, more people lose their jobs, more people wonder how the heck they're going to pay the rent or the mortgage or things like that. And apparently... Democrats just didn't care. Apparently, it just wasn't important enough. Or they were so convinced that Republicans were, they had, Republicans were so desperate that they would agree to all this stuff and that, you know, Repub Democrats would get a win-win. They get all this other stuff they wanted and they get to vote for this stuff in the vote. I think they've now got something akin to a loss-loss, although we'll see how the public responds to this further. But when people argue the United States is a dysfunctional government, we're becoming a third world country and things like that, I don't want to believe that really pessimistic assessments like that are true. The fight on Capitol Hill and the obstinance of the Democrats, their inability to put aside their urge to get the usual pork barrel, I want to help this cause, I want to help that cause instincts, really does uh, create that kind of unnerving possibility that our government cannot function the way it needs to in a crisis.
I love the optimism. We'll see if it actually comes together. <laughs> Mitch McConnell says we're on the five-yard line. He didn't say which five-yard line, but, I, <laughs> but based on the context, I think he thought he was uh, five yards away from getting this done. So we'll actually see if the Democrats are at least chastened enough here to get this done. Because uh, you're right. I think this is probably a lost loss for them to not only take the heat, but then uh, never even really advance anything with uh, all these uh, wish list provisions that were completely unrelated. I don't see what the positive was for them in this at all, unless they really are setting the stage for something a little bit later on. Yeah, and I just want to jump in and add one point I saw from Politimath, which does not, you know, should not be overlooked at a moment like this. Greg, do you remember like a month ago when Mitt Romney voted for the impeachment of President Trump and all these Democrats said that he was a hero, that he was standing for principle, that he was made of a demonstrated a different moral character than the rest of the party? Yes, sure. And this week he said, we got to get the stimulus thing done, pa- done fast. And he, and he offered by Mitt Romney. I, I joked yesterday he was so angry he used a contraction. Uh, <laughs> Mitt Romney was furious, right? Now, what's interesting is that here's a situation where one month ago, Democrats were saying this guy has, you know, has good judgment. Like this guy sees things. And clearly, as soon as impeachment ended, that dropped. And he was back to being the terrible former CEO who gave workers cancer and, and all that, you know, dog on the roof all that kind of stuff. It means that none of that praise during impeachment really mattered, that they don't really mean any of this stuff, that, that this is basically, oh, if you're agreeing with my side that you're a good guy, if you're opposing my side, you're a bad guy, and none of my assessments have anything to do with anything else. Because if it meant something, then you'd like to think that at least some Democrats would be, whoa, okay, we know Mitt Romney's not unreasonable. We know Mitt Romney is not some um, frothing at the mouth, partisan hack. I mean, guys like John Barrasso <laughs> are furious over this. Susan Collins is, you know, uh, in, enraged about this. When, re- when the most moderate and milquetoast Republicans are saying, Democrats, how can you do this? You'd like to think that at least some Democrats would have said, wait, okay, guys, maybe we're pushing this too far. And absolutely, uh, there's, there's no indication that Democrats did this at one, one iota. Let's move on to our second crazy martini. And for this, we head over to NBC News, but a lot of other uh, outlets uh, covered this, specifically blaming Trump for a 68-year-old man taking chloroquine and dying, and his wife taking it as well and ending up hospitalized. Uh, NBC News, this is how they report it in their tweet. Arizona man dies after ingesting chloroquine in an attempt to prevent coronavirus. There are no drugs approved to try to prevent or treat the new coronavirus. Self-medicating to prevent the coronavirus can be dangerous and possibly deadly. Then Heidi Prisbella of NBC kind of picks up the uh, interview that her colleague Von Hilliard did with the woman who's being hospitalized here. She says, we saw Trump on TV, every channel and all his buddies, and that this was safe, she said. Trump kept saying it was basically pretty much a cure. Then she goes on to say, don't take anything, don't believe anything, don't believe anything that the president says and his people because they don't know what they're talking about. And don't take anything, be so careful and call your doctor. This is a heartache I'll never get over. And Jim, obviously we have great sympathy for a woman who's lost her husband and now her own health is compromised to some extent. But what NBC and so many other of these media outlets aren't reporting is these people consumed fish tank cleaner because the ingredient chloroquine was in there. At no point did Trump or anyone else associated with him suggest this. And now Trump is being blamed. I think the Hill was the worst. They've actually taken their tweet down. It was so egregious. But others have basically said, Trump said, take chloroquine. These people did it. And now one of them's dead. Uh, I guess you can't fix stupid sometimes. You can't, Greg. But I just want to observe, there was a time when I was, you know, a younger man in, in Washington, D.C. journalism where 
The Hill was once a serious Capitol Hill newspaper that, that focused on covering Capitol Hill and Congress and what was going on in depth. It has now become a clickbait factory. Generally, for example, every single time you see, you know, conservative commentator denounces Trump, it is a summary of Jen Rubin's latest column at the Washington Post. And so probably the most misleading, the, pro the most hyperbolic and inaccurate, you know, headlines in any given news cycle, there's a good chance it comes from the, the, the Hill. To let people in on something, I, a, a little bit of, you know, behind the scenes stuff. Early this morning, I get a message from Charlie Cook saying, hey, will you take a look at this? He's got a corner post saying, no, President Trump did not make anyone ingest fish tank cleaner. And it's basically the gist of what he um, uh, wrote in the corner post. We just kind of tweet. I said, what a recommendation towards the end. And like, it was like, you know, we have all kinds of ridiculous warnings on products that are basically designed for astonishingly stupid people. And I sent him a link to an article entitled, why does your chainsaw say not to hold it by the wrong end? Uh, it is by a lawyer talking about the product liability process and how um, some of this is because people are genuinely stupid. And some of this is simply because it's manufacturers want to avoid a defective product lawsuit. And, you know, Charlie has a very good point. I added something a bit more to say, Greg, there is no quarantine for stupidity. And there is no, there is no uh, way to inoculate yourself against it. So when you say, oh my goodness, the president talked about these drugs. And by the way, I think the president is being a little too optimistic in his assessments. Um, Fauci and, and the rest of the doctors are saying that there is potential. These drugs could be very effective in treating it. But potential is not certainty. Um, I have no problem with cautious optimism. I think the president tends to forget the cautious part. And yeah, okay, if you want to give him some brief saying he's making it sound like it's a sure thing, that's a, that's a fair gripe. What we're not seeing here, at no point does he say, by the way, it's worth noting, the drug that they took and the, you know, the drug the president was talking about were not the same thing. Chloroquine is not quite the same thing as what's in there, uh, in your fish tank cleaner. And so, Greg, you look around this, we realize we live in a world in which the box for Nightall warns you it may cause drowsiness. It's a sleeping pill. Wheelbarrows have signs that say it's not intended for highway use. No, you should not be giving people, you know, riding around in a wheelbarrow. Greg, I don't know if you know this, the air erasable marker that you use for fabric when you need to mark something, you want it to disappear, should not be used as a writing instrument for signing checks or any legal documents. No. Yeah. But my absolute favorite, and my thing is that if you're, e if you're eating fish tank cleaner because you think it's going to keep away the coronavirus, you probably are the kind of person who needed the warning from Apple to not eat your iPod. Now, admittedly, it is a product from Apple. So maybe some people thought it was apple flavored or, or something like that. The Darwin Awards, the Tide Pod Challenge, the Bird Box Challenge. There's a lot of evidence. There are a lot of stupid Americans out there. That's a problem in and of itself. We are going to beat the coronavirus long before we beat human stupidity. However, the idea of taking every one of these things and trying to turn it into another gotcha story against the president is not helpful. And, and you're starting to see some discussion around social media today. You know, the president's going to say things that are, not less than fully accurate, shall we say. And he's going to say things that are too optimistic. And he's going to say things that are, you know, the gist is correct, but maybe not the details, you know. And that's bad. That's a problem. But uh, all in all, but, you know, we also have Pence. We also have Fauci. We also have Dr. Bricks. We have lots of other folks who are more up to the technical details and Americans should listen to that. It, the problem of whatever the president says that's inaccurate gets exacerbated by a media that, is, that finds this to be the most interesting aspect of whatever that's going on during a global pandemic. We have bigger issues right now. I don't quite know whether the coverage of this woman 
with this woman is running around saying, don't listen to what the president is saying. I, it, I think that's, we're now reaching irresponsible journalism. I understand she's just been through a terrible experience. She's lost her husband. She's herself at risk. But um, this is a search for the scapegoat. And the president is not responsible for every dumb thing that every dumb person does across the country. All right. Let's go on to our third and final crazy martini. So we got the media on the left. Uh, one of the president's uh, most prominent supporters on the right is Jerry Falwell Jr., Jerry Falwell Jr. is the president of Liberty University. Liberty University is in Virginia. And if you live in Virginia, you know that yesterday, Governor Ralph Northam closed public and private schools, meaning K through 12, uh, for the rest of the school year. Didn't quite go onto shelter in place, but uh, definitely clamped down on what businesses can be open and how many people can be in them. In Lynchburg, Virginia, home of Liberty University, it's back to school, baby. This is uh, the Richmond Times-Dispatch. As the coronavirus threatens to spread across the Lynchburg region, Liberty University officials are preparing to welcome back up to 5,000 students from spring break this week. Defying a national trend of campus closures, President Jerry Falwell Jr. has invited students to return to residence halls and has directed faculty members to continue to report to campus even as most classes move online. In an interview Sunday night, Falwell said somewhere between several hundred to more than 5,000 students are expected to live in campus dorms where they will continue coursework online rather than in classrooms. That's curious in and of itself. Meanwhile, hundreds of professors and instructors without a valid health exemption will come to campus to hold office hours. He says we have a responsibility to our students who pay to be here and who want to be here and who love it here. So, Jim, the fact that it's going to be all online anyway is a real head scratcher that they really want them all back on campus. What do you make of uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. bucking the trend? Well, the word bucking comes up or something that kind of rhymes with that. Um, I can imagine scenarios where colleges might say some of our students, uh, particularly those that have international students or something like that, may have difficulty returning to their homes. We're going to keep the dorms open for a particular uh, period of time. Uh, you know, flights being canceled. Uh, I think I understand Acela's ridership is down 99%. If for some reason they can't get back to their regular, you know, usual shelter, uh, then maybe that makes sense. Uh, I can think of scenarios where, I'm, I'm, you know, most universities are still continuing, trying to continue classes, but they're trying to do it through online learning and, and things like that. And look, I understand every college administrator, every government official is trying to feel their way through here and is trying to, you know, improvise a solution in a kind of unprecedented set of circumstances. With all of that granted, if you are the lone college that's open when everybody else around you is closed uh, or is not having students, you know, getting together, that's, you know, that, that's a giant warning sign. <laughs> that's a, you know, um, that's a giant uh, uh, signal that, hmm, maybe I, you know, maybe I don't want to be that one person who uh, is, is zigging when everyone else is zagging, particularly when it comes to the issue of a potentially dead, deadly ending. Yes, college students are probably at lowest risk of having a fatality from the coronavirus. By the way, Greg, I don't know if you saw in that story, did any of those spring break students go down to Florida? Didn't say. Okay. I mean, I'm assuming the demographics of what we saw, the comments of those, you know, college students on the beaches in Florida don't seem like they're from Liberty University, but uh, you never know. But uh, look, you know, the college students, because of their youth, are not immune to the coronavirus and not immune to bad uh, reactions. Thankfully, the fatality rate is very, very low, but nobody wants to spend time in an ICU. And we have had cases of people who are significantly younger. The fact that they're keeping people out of the classrooms is kind of an indication that they recognize there's some danger there, but they seem to think there's not much of a problem of college students living together. 
like I said, there's a nagging fear that, you know, this is, this is somebody who wants to believe the solution is imminent and the solution is not imminent. I, I don't understand why they can't go take the courses that they, they take the course, no pun intended, that other colleges and universities are taking. Um, there seems to be a mentality among some folks of, and I wonder how you know, like a carryover from 9-11. Well, if we stop doing what we do, then the terrorists win. And, and that was a strong and valid argument in the post 9-11 response and our response to the war on terror. The virus doesn't care. <laughs> the virus <laughs> has no consciousness. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't know if we're doing online classes or in classes. I mean, it, it can't spread from person to person in that circumstance. But uh, so it's one of those things where I understand the desire to have defiance. I understand the desire to somehow show we're not going to back down from this. But canceling your classes or moving everything to online, that's not, that's not a, an act of cowardice. That is an act of appropriate risk assessment. And I hope Liberty University reconsiders this decision because um, based on what we know so far, there's a really unnerving possibility that they're exposing their students to an unnecessary and unwise risk. Jim, I read this story and uh, it makes me think of the climate change debate. Not that I'm equating the validity of the two arguments or anything like that, but one of the arguments that we always uh, come up with with climate change is, okay, Democrats, let's say we go down your road and do all these draconian things that hurt our economy. You still got the whole rest of the world. And now we kind of see two different camps here with response to the virus too. Okay, we're going to hunker down for two weeks or a month or whatever might flatten the curve here. Well, a lot of folks will hunker down. But if the other half doesn't hunker down, does it actually accomplish anything? As, you're, as we're discussing how much time is appropriate, Greg, I'm reminded of a scene from 30 Rock. Matt Damon is playing an airline pilot who is dating the uh, Liz Lemon character. And he, you know, she's like, what do you know in the airline industry that you know, we passengers don't know? And he says, well, the, I'm paraphrasing all the dialogue here, but the gist is, Whenever we have to announce a delay, we, always, we never say it's going to be any more than half an hour, even if we know it's going to be significantly longer than half an hour. She's like, why? Because, well, because that's the most amount of time you can ask someone to wait before they get really mad. Obviously, that scene is written for comedy, but you wonder if it's inspired by some actual comment by a pilot. Greg, I don't know about you. I don't know how many times I've heard, uh, folks, we're going to be uh, stuck here on the tarmac for probably about uh, 30 minutes now. We, we're hoping to get clearance from the tower, and we'll get you out of here as soon as we can. Um, how many times in your life have you heard the signal and you're saying, thinking, wait a minute, maybe it's going to be more than that, but they know 30 minutes is the, mag is the magic moment, is the magic amount of time that, well, okay, I can wait, but I'm not going to freak out. It'd be nice if everyone in government could say, we're going to reassess this after two weeks and hold up that possibility that maybe in two weeks, whatever we're doing doesn't need to be done. Now, here's the thing. Based on what all the data we're seeing, we're probably not going to get through this storm in two weeks. We may not get through the storm in a month. We may not be through the storm in six weeks. I do think it's safe to say we can't keep locked up in our houses for six weeks at a time. We, we need more of a social interaction than going to the grocery store. How the leaders of society work this out, I, I point in today's morning jolt, there are 16 counties in California where there are zero reported cases of coronavirus. Obviously, they're mostly rural ones. Uh, the entire state is in that shelter-in-place lockdown status right now. Um, God knows how effectively it's being enforced from community to community and neighborhood to neighborhood. You know, does it make sense to have everybody in a shelter-in-place condition in a county where no cases have been reported? Well, some virologists would say yes, because if you do that, it means that the virus won't spread to that county. On the other hand, people might say, well, wait a second. If that county can do, at least do something to keep the economy going, why shouldn't they? I realize these are difficult choices, and everybody's going to try to reach the best balance that they can. But I think it would be a little bit easier if each time we got some sort of statement that said, we will reevaluate this at this point, and if we can loosen the reins, so to speak, we will do so. 
So dear leaders, please do that because otherwise I think you'll get more and more people thinking, ah, they're just making this up as they go along. They don't know what they're talking about. Let's all get together and have a backyard barbecue with our neighbors and, and all that kind of stuff. People will start ignoring the rules if they feel like the rules aren't there for a good reason. Yes, but do not ingest the fish tank cleaner. That is yeah, the biggest that'd lesson be the first of the day. thing. Yeah, rule, rule that out. Jim, well, uh, we'll see what happens the rest of today. The market's so far behaving. Let's hope it stays that way. And we actually get some resolution here to give some folks some confidence uh, for the next few weeks at least. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thank you so much for being with us today. Please do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a kind review. Also, if you've got one of those home devices, all you have to do to hear us is say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. We'll see you Wednesday on the Three Martini Lunch.